You seem very far away tonight. We'll have to get those ropes uh, lengthened again and, and bring you all forward. Wonderful to have you here with us. And I hope you've enjoyed just taking a little bit more time than we normally do just to be in God's presence and to worship him as we've been singing. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the invitation into your presence that we've already uh, known and experienced here this evening. And we thank you that when you call us to yourself, you speak to us. You tell us what is on your heart. Lord, we pray that you would do that for us just now. Speak your words and speak them to our hearts. Speak them into the depths of our lives as we open your word together now for just a few minutes this evening. Amen. Keep open before you Colossians chapter 1, page 1182, and it'll help you to follow um, our, our sermon here this evening. I'm do, going to do something different than I would normally do. Normally when I introduce a letter, I would try and spend a bit of time giving you an idea of what lies ahead in the letter, uh, maybe drawing attention to a couple of major themes. Or I'm not going to do that tonight. Once or twice when I've done that, I, I felt a little bit like um, somebody who was trying to drum up interest for something, the thing actually being much more, interest, uh, much more interesting than my drumming up the interest. So I'm not going to do that at all tonight. Uh, we're going to go very quickly to Colossians and begin to look at, uh, at the, what God's Word there says to us without me boring you too much about Colossae and, and all the history of that city. And uh, I've seen that done once or twice, and there's nothing worse I could do this evening than bore you before we even start to, to look at God's Word, because God's Word is never boring. And if I manage to make it boring, that's, that's always my fault. So let's begin this evening right at the beginning. I hope, by the way, as we do do this, I'll be able to point out one or two things that, that will act as a, an introduction and, and will give us a bit of a framework for looking at the letter. But I'll do it as we go through uh, the, the letter itself rather than me imposing that. Look with me at verse 1. The Bible is a different um, book than most of the books that you and I read. Even the letters in the Bible are different than any letters that you and I would receive. So whenever you start to read one, it, it seems awkward and a little bit clumsy. But one thing I must say to you is it follows entirely the normal letter writing practice uh, of the time in, in which Paul was writing. Whenever we write a letter, for example, we have a, a sort of a threefold structure. Dear Bob, then the body of the letter, however long that happens to be, from Frank. So it's dear whoever you're writing to, body of the letter, and then it's only at the end that you give away the name of who's actually writing. And if you're anything like me, when you receive a letter, you don't start at the beginning. If you haven't worked out from the postmark where it's from or the handwriting isn't familiar, you'll immediately start at the back. Who is this from? Well, 
this letter, in a sense, is a little bit easier because the, the structure that they used at the time when Paul was writing was sender, addressee, greeting, and then the body of the letter. So we begin here with the word that we would normally have at the very end of a letter, Paul, name of the sender of the letter. So Paul here is following exactly the normal conventions of his day when he's writing. But what he does here is he expands it a little bit. Because really, if Paul was following the conventions of his day, he would just simply write, Paul, to the brothers and sisters in Colossae, grace and peace to you. But Paul says a little bit more than that. And I want to look just for a couple of seconds at what Paul does to expand all of that. First of all, he says, not just Paul, but he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I thought as, as I was doing this, I'd have a look at all of Paul's letters, just to see if, if this is the only one where he does this. Uh, actually, if you had a look, you'd find that there are only two of Paul's letters where he, he doesn't expand on his own name. Those are the two letters to Colossians. He always states his identity, and the interesting thing is it's always relating himself to Jesus Christ. He's either a servant of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Paul's identity is in Jesus. I think that's brilliant. If you ask Paul about himself, he wouldn't tell you about his job or where he was born or who was in his family. He'd probably start by saying, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. That was the key thing about who he was. And we read on there that he says, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. You see, Paul believed that the role he had was one that had been given to him by God's will. It was a role that he first ever was identified with. One day when he was walking along the Damascus Road and he had a vision of the risen Lord Jesus, it was then that God made clear his will to Paul that this ultra-conservative Jew this persecutor of the church was going to change sides. He was going to become a dramatic builder of the church, a great messenger of the gospel throughout the world. It's because of this that Paul expects people in Colossae to take this letter seriously. Because of his apostleship by the will of God. And it's because of this that we treat this letter seriously. Because Paul is speaking the words that God has given to him. Well, let's read on there. We've, we've dealt with Paul. Who's this letter addressed to? It's addressed to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae. By the way, when it says here, holy and faithful, it doesn't mean that these folks are particularly impressive as a church of Jesus Christ. It's not that the people in Colossae were a better church than people anywhere else. All this is, is realistic theology. Paul looks at this very ordinary gathering of very ordinary people in Colossae, and he sees them with all their imperfections from God's point of view. And from God's point of view, they're holy and faithful. It's something that Paul could say about any true community of the people of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know much about 
Paul's letter to the Corinthians, the first letter. In a good part of that letter, he has to be very critical and, and pretty harsh with the people in Corinth. But you know how he begins that letter? He says, to the church of God in Corinth, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Even though these people were a mess and were in a mess, he's able to say these wonderful, glowing things about them. Friends, tonight, it's my wonderful privilege to bring God's word to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Ballyhackamore. That's who we are. That's who we are in Jesus Christ. That's what God sees when he looks at us gathered here this evening. Isn't that just brilliant? The holy and faithful brothers and sisters. There's something else in verse 2 that we miss here actually in the English translation. This letter is addressed to those who are in Christ and in Corinth. Now those two phrases are really nicely balanced in the Greek. They come either side of this phrase, holy and faithful. So it's as though Paul is saying in Christ and in Corinth, those two somehow are balanced. And it's as though he wants his readers to see in Christ as a location, standing over and against the location in Corinth. It's as though he wants people to understand that we can stand in Christ. Being in Christ is our identity when we're followers of Jesus. Tonight, you and I, if we're followers of Jesus, stand in two places. We stand in Christ, but we also stand in Ballyhackamore. And it's important that we take both of those seriously, that we keep both of them in balance. Whenever we get one part of that equation dominating the other, then things start to go wrong. If, for example, we think only of ourselves in Ballyhackamore and, and focus only on, on the everyday nitty-gritty of our earthly lives, we forget this, this massive identity that we have in Jesus Christ. But equally, I think there's a problem if, if we think of ourselves only as those who are in Christ, uh, as we maybe become too insular in the church, too, too spiritual to be of any use outside of the church. We're to be in Christ, in Ballyhackamore. That's the, the wonderful challenge here. Here, by the way, I think Paul... By, by locating these believers in Christ, he's already identified the dominant theme of this letter to the church in Colossae, the complete supremacy and centrality of Jesus Christ. We're going to see this time and time again throughout this letter. Christ is the be-all and end-all of Christian living. If you want to be a mature Christian, you must Throw yourself entirely into Jesus Christ. Learn to stand entirely on Jesus Christ. This, this letter actually is a wonderful account of that. How we can learn to find our complete identity in Jesus. My New Testament professor at college, Gordon Fee, when he writes on Colossians, he puts it like this. He sums it up saying, Christ is the whole package. So don't let go of him.
Christ is the whole package, so don't let go of him. That might seem quite obvious, but, but believe me, in the church there's, there's often quite a lot going on and a lot of things that can be quite distracting. Keeping Jesus at the center and as the foundation isn't always as easy as you might imagine, but Colossians will help us to do that. Very, very quickly, who are these people to whom Paul is writing? Well, Colossae is a town about 120 miles southwest of Ephesus. I was hoping that there might be a Bible in the, the back of those, or sorry, a map in the back pages of the Bible in the pews, but unfortunately there wasn't. Um, Colossae, as I say, is it's basically in modern-day Turkey. If I had some means, I'd maybe show you a map of that. Paul's never been in Colossae. And he's writing to the church there. So why is he writing to a church that he's never been to and he certainly didn't find? Well, the reason is because Epaphras, his co-worker, has come to visit him in prison. Paul's in prison either in Ephesus or in Rome. Now, it's Epaphras who founded these churches in the Colossae area. And he's brought Paul these glowing reports about the new believers in Colossae, these new congregations. And so Paul here, he's taking an opportunity to write back to the church there to encourage them. Now, one thing we do know, if there's not too much we know about the detail, this congregation in Colossae was pretty young. It wasn't like the Presbyterian Church in Ireland with a 400-year history to look back on. This church was probably somewhere between 15 and 20 years old. It's probably made up of mostly non-Jews. And Paul's very aware of what, what that would have meant. These are people young in their faith. These are people with not a strong background in, in the faith. So Paul's major aim when he's writing this letter to the believers in Colossae is that they grow. That they grow to maturity in Jesus Christ. Whenever we study this letter, we're studying a document that's going to urge us to grow into maturity and as disciples of Jesus Christ. In his assessment, Dallas Willard says that Colossians is probably the best overall statement on the spiritual formation of the disciple in the entire New Testament. If you have been around Kirkpatrick for a while, you'll know that this is, this is something that I always harp back to. The need for those who, who are Christians to understand themselves as disciples. Those who are growing and are learning and are maturing in their faith. Not people who are sitting still. Colossians is a wonderful book to be studying if we want to grow in Jesus. If, if we go on there, look with me at Paul's greeting in the second half of that verse. He refers there to grace, and he reminds us that everything that we have from God's a gift. None, nothing that happens in the life of faith is, is anything that we are, and it's always a gift. And then there's the mention of peace. For Paul to write about peace, there's always the Hebrew word shalom in the background. I don't know if you know much about that word, but it's a wonderful word. It doesn't mean peace as in absence of war or feeling pretty calm and happy with your life. Shalom means everything. 
to do with well-being. Shalom means a wonderful, full, and rich, and blessed life. That's what Paul's talking about here. And he sees all of that in the life of God. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. We're going to to focus just down to verse 8 very, very quickly. And as we look at verses 3 to verse 8, we see Paul thanking God for the growth of this young church in Colossians. We've already seen Paul's theme, and his theme throughout this letter is going to be the centrality and supremacy of Christ. We've already seen his aim. His aim is to see these young believers come to maturity. And now I think we see something of his attitude. Paul thanks God. Thanksgiving is important in this letter. If you took a a felt pen out and and highlighted every time you see the word thankfulness or thanksgiving, you'd see it crops up quite a few times in these four short chapters. It really struck me that thanksgiving has been a big topic for us today here at Kirkpatrick because this morning we had Paul Cameron here talking about the the ten lepers and how one of them returned to thank Jesus. It doesn't sound very crucial, but as I go on, I'm discovering that thanksgiving actually is massively central to Christian living. You can tell very much about the maturity of a person in Christ by how thankful they are to God for all that God has done for them. If you find a person, no matter how long they've been on the road, and no matter how far they appear to have progressed, if you never hear a word of thankfulness, grace, a recognition of of God's goodness to them, then there are question marks about that person's maturity and their understanding of the life of God. It's something that's going to be cropping up time and time again in this letter. It's like an indicator of spiritual maturity is is thankfulness. These these short verses here give us a bit of an insight into Paul's prayerfulness and his thankfulness. Look at verse 3 there. The always, by the way, should really go with the when we pray for you. So the sentence should read, we thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we always pray for you. Paul is always praying for the church in Colossae. And when he does that, he thanks God. Isn't it brilliant when you discover people who are always praying? I I know some people of whom I could say that, and it, it would be entirely accurate. I know there are some people here this evening who are always praying for the life of this congregation. It's brilliant. It's a a recognition that everything that happens here relies on God. That's why one of the first things that, that we did here a year and a half ago when we began a new ministry together was begin a Wednesday night fellowship so that we as a congregation would meet together to pray. It's why we keep that going even through the summer months While every other organization in the church pretty much closes down, we continue to meet together to pray. 
because we know that we rely on God for absolutely everything. Praying without ceasing. Uh, it's, it's something that is, is very common in Paul. In verses 4 to 5, Paul does something that he's done in a couple of other passages elsewhere. He draws together three virtues, faith, hope, and love. And these are the things in the church in Colossae for which he thanks God. Let's look at them very, very quickly in turn. First of all, faith. When Paul talks here about faith, it isn't just any religious faith. It's defined as faith in Jesus Christ. That's important nowadays. Often in my pastoral visitation, if I call with people, they'll use a wee phrase. It's a very, very common one. Oh, I have a faith. They'll say. And a lot of people will use that. But whenever we chat a little bit further and, and we talk about it, we'll discover that, that the grounds of their faith or the object of their faith is actually quite vague. They, they maybe have some vague historical connection with church. They maybe believe that, that Jesus existed and some of the things in the Bible are true. But that's not the faith that Paul's talking about here. The faith that Paul is talking about here is in Jesus Christ. It's faith that Jesus Christ lived and died and rose again, and he did all these things because he was the Son of God. And then it's a putting our trust in him and in everything that he says. What about love? In verse 4, Paul thanks God for the love in Colossae for all the saints. This, is, this by the way, in, if you read the Bible carefully, the New Testament, you'll see that this is always the badge of a true church. The place where God is really at work is a place where people begin to love one another. And you'll notice in verse 4 that, that Paul just doesn't leave it by, by saying love. He says love for all the saints. You see, love's easy if we were only called to love those people who, whom we like, those people with whom we have something in common. But that's not what Paul's saying. Those who are in Christ are called to love all the saints. And anyone who's been around the church for a while will know that just because we happen to be in the same congregation together doesn't mean that we're all alike, that we all have massive amounts in common. In fact, often we find that we're, we're very diverse, we have a lot of different interests, we have very different temperaments, and yet we are the people who are called to love one another. That love is in Colossae. And Paul is grateful to God for it. Kirkpatrick is, is a growing church these days. And I think people are, are beginning to become aware of that. It's, it's very exciting. And I know that people outside of the congregation are looking on in amazement. It seems to me, though, that, that we need to be growing in more than just numbers. We need to be growing in love. If, if in five or ten years' time every seat here is full on a Monday morning or a Sunday morning, but we don't love one another, 
then I wonder how far we've really come. There's a hollowness, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, where there is not love, where a resounding symbol, it's a hollow sort of experience. We long to be growing in love for all the saints. Moving on in in verse 5, Paul tells us that this faith and this hope, this love spring from the hope that is stored up for you in heaven. By the way, Paul isn't, whenever we think of hope, we think of it as as a state of being or an activity. Paul's actually talking about it as as the thing that we're hoping for almost, the hope that is stored up for us in heaven. It's the solid biblical facts about the future that's ahead of us that Paul is talking about here. If you're a Christian tonight, I wonder how tangible the sense of hope is in your life. I'm challenging myself here. I'm somebody who finds it easy sometimes to be a little cynical or, or to see the glasses half, half full. Is there a tangible sense of hope in your life tonight? Do you have a sense that your life tonight is held in the hand of God? It really is. Do you really believe that every part of your future, every day in your future, is under God's care. It really and concretely is. Do you have an excitement when you anticipate what lies ahead in your life and what lies ahead beyond the grave? If you're in Christ, you could and and you should. It's when we discover this kind of hope that, that love and faith naturally and spontaneously spring up in our lives. In the second half of verse 5, Paul returns to the the word of truth, the gospel that the Colossians have heard. He talks about it, first of all, as a gospel that has come to them. And I'm just going to to move on. In the second half of verse 6, Paul does a very interesting thing. And he talks about the gospel almost as though it were a plant. He talks about the gospel that's bearing fruit and growing. Now, it's interesting that we're thinking about this at a time when we've been thinking about the early chapters of Genesis in our morning sermons. I think here that there are echoes of Genesis chapter 1. If you remember, in Genesis 1, men and women who had been created in the image of God are told to be fruitful and to increase in number and to fill the earth and subdue it. Throughout the Old Testament, that's what God's people understood themselves to be doing, that they were fulfilling God's purposes in the world. They would bear fruit and grow and that God would use them to undo the effects of the fall and to create a a new holy people which is God's purpose for humanity. I think what Paul's doing here is he's rethinking the whole of the Jewish story, the whole Jewish belief, and he's rethinking it in the light of Jesus Christ. He's taking the Jewish idea of creation, the idea that they are to be working toward the recreation of the earth, 
And he's identifying all of that with the believers in Colossae, those who are in Christ. Paul is saying that God is now doing through the gospel what he always intended to do. He's sowing good seed all over the world. He's preparing to reap a harvest of human lives. People who are recreated in his image for his glory. I don't know about you, but I think it's massively exciting to think that all that was lost, all that we thought about last Sunday morning that was lost in the fall, God is reversing it. And he's reversing it in his new creation, the people of God in Jesus. Let me finish. When we stand back and take a look at this opening passage, we get some idea of the major aspects of this letter. Paul's theme throughout is is the complete centrality and supremacy of Jesus Christ. We're going to see that time and time again. Paul's aim in writing is to encourage the believers to, to understand that and to grow in maturity in Jesus Christ. And Paul's attitude is always one of thanksgiving. As we read Colossians together, let's, let's allow God to show us the full glory of Jesus Christ. Let's pray that he'll use this part of his word to move us on to greater maturity in Jesus. And let's respond to God's goodness in us, God's goodness to us in Jesus, by thanksgiving. Tonight, I want to do something a little bit different. Normally, after I preach, I would lead you in prayer and, and maybe pray about something that we've learned from God's Word. Tonight, I want to do something different. I was wondering if it was okay to do this because I don't remember a minister doing this at any service that I've been at. Rather than leading you in prayer, I would like to pray for you. I think it is okay to do it because I do this often when I meet with you in, in your homes or in other contexts. I want to do that because I, I want to try and encapsulate and I want to do for you what Paul is doing for the believers in Colossae. So if you don't mind this evening, I'd like us all to pray, but me to be praying for you. Let us pray. Gracious Father God, I thank you for these faithful brothers and sisters gathered here this evening. I thank you for the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Ballyhackamore. Lord, I thank you for their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you for that that faith and all the expressions of it in the past. Thank you for those who have been here, not just for months, not even just years, but those who have been here for decades and generations. We thank you for the time when you called them to know and to love Jesus. 
We thank you for their faith in Jesus, which has been growing in them. And Lord, we thank you for the way in which they have welcomed many of us who have come and joined this church. Lord, we thank you for the the new faith in Jesus that, that is being expressed in our church life week by week. Thank you for those who know you and love you and who have joined this community here. And Lord, we pray for those who will come to have faith in Jesus Christ here in the future. Lord, we pray for many in our congregation who are members here but don't yet have a living faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, will you reach them in your grace? Will you use us to reach them, we pray. Father God, we thank you, or I thank you, for the love that's been displayed among the brothers and sisters here in this congregation. Thank you for the warmth that so many people experience when they come to worship with us. Lord, the smiles and the warm handshakes and the real sense of welcome. Lord, we pray that our love here over the months and years that lie ahead would become that supernatural love of yours. That it will become the love that Jesus Christ displayed as he died on the cross. A love that will sacrifice anything, that will even lay down its life for another. Lord, will you help us to learn to love all the saints in our life together here? Father God, I want to thank you for the hope that I have found in this congregation here in Kirkpatrick. Lord, we thank you for the new hope and the vision of a new future that you have increasingly been working in us, especially in these last months and years. Lord, we know that you can do anything, that you can make all things new. And we praise you and we thank you. We recognize that it's all of you. Father God, I've thanked you for these faithful brothers and sisters. Lord, very briefly, I I pray that together we would discover the absolute centrality of Jesus in everything, that we would find ourselves in him, that we would stand only on him, that he would be our all in all. Lord, will you make us mature? Lord, help us never ever to be content with a little of you. Give us a hunger and a desire for all of you. And Lord, as we grow in you, open our hearts and our lives to you in thanksgiving. Lord, we thank you for Jesus and we pray that you would draw us into him. Amen.